Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Bleed Los Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by your good friends at TicketIQ.com. Do you like baseball? Do you like saving money to go watch baseball games like I do? Well, if you go to our uh, our friends' website at TicketIQ.com to look for home and away games, they will save you money. So, for being a loyal listener to this here podcast, if you go to DodgersBeat.com and you click on the link tree and you go to TicketIQ.com from there, whatever game you want to go to, whether it's a Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, wherever, add it to your cart. And for being a loyal listener to this here podcast, they're going to save you some money. Huge thanks to TicketIQ.com for the consideration. Terms and conditions always apply. Please see their website for more details. Huge thanks to uh, TicketIQ.com. This podcast is also brought to you by our good friends at Foco.com. If you go to their website, Foco.com, you go around, add stuff to your cart, be it you know, maybe a, uh, a Dodger straw hat that you can wear out while you're doing some yard work, you want a bobblehead, hey, add it to your cart. And for being a loyal listener to this year podcast, if you use the promo code DodgersBeat10, DodgersBeat and the number 10, you will get 10% off of your purchase for being a loyal listener to this year podcast. So huge thanks to Foco.com. Go use that promo code. Go to their website, Foco.com. This week in the in the uh, podcast world, we uh, we took we took some time off, uh, you know, because we've been busy, holidays, summer family stuff, all that jazz. But uh, we, we were able to uh, to be joined this week by Josh Rawich. Josh Rawich is the, he's been named the new president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, otherwise known as Cooperstown. He, uh, we, you know, we talk about his career, we talk about his role, and we also touch on a little, little controversy. The Barry Bonds, the Roger Clemens, the Kurt Schillings of the world. And also some of the upcoming uh, eligibility guys, Carlos Beltran, stuff like that. But he, I mean, this dude is a baseball lifer. He uh, he gets it. You know, he gets it. And he was gracious enough to make some time for us uh, where we uh, where we kind of talk about it, a little bit of everything. So without further ado, in the Carnasada this week, we welcome again Josh Rowage. This is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your Los Angeles Dodgers. And now, it's time for the Bleed Los Podcast with your hosts, Alonso and Juan, with the baby face gimmick in the sky, Roger. And this week, we are uh, honored and, uh, and privileged, really, to have uh, someone join us on the Carnesada that uh, I know doesn't really do a lot of interviews, too. The only real people that I've seen have interviews with uh, someone that holds this role is Dan Patrick. And that's why I'm stoked, uh, because I'm all about the preservation of history, especially for our beautiful game of baseball. But this week, we are joined by the uh, incoming president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, Josh Rowich. Josh, thank you for making the time for us. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Excited to talk to you. Well, let's, let's just dive into it. You, Like I said, you're the incoming president of, the, uh, of everything in Cooperstown. Our game is all about you know history. The preservation of history—it's a—it's a beautiful thing. 
you get to work at Cooperstown every day. How, how sick is that just to even try to digest for a second? In a lot of ways, it still hasn't hit me. I actually said to my wife this morning, we were having coffee and I said, there are, there are moments when I actually, it almost feels like we're on vacation and we're going back to Arizona sometimes and we're not clearly. Um, but it has just been unbelievable. I mean, every day you, today I popped into the office because we have the induction ceremony this week and just unlocking the door to the hall of fame, walking into the office. And then I, I actually met a reporter an, an old reporter from Colorado there. And I, I just wandered through the plaque gallery and just, it, it is, it really kind of boggles my mind that this is where my career has led me to after uh, 27 years of, of working in baseball. Well, and to your point, you're, you're a baseball lifer. You know, you've, you've worked for the Diamondbacks, you've worked for the Dodgers, you know, you've, you've worked in communications and, and, you know, kind of bounced around in some of those positions. How is it going on that side of the game? Because I mean, again, we're talking about the preservation and the history of the game and you're going from day to day stuff to now enshrinement, if you will, of that. So how has that kind of that curve been, been treating you so far? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all been great to this point. I mean, there's incredible people that work at the hall who literally have dedicated their lives. So many of the people I talk to have been working there for 10, 15, 25 years, not in a lot of ways, similar to the way the Dodgers were when I was coming up through it, where people had been there for two and three decades. So, um, knowing that our job really is, it's, it's, it's multiple things. The hall of fame is what everybody always thinks about. Cause that's, that's the induction and that's the, that's the, glamorous part of it but certainly the museum itself where hundreds of thousands of people come every single year and spend time going through the exhibits and understanding um the deep history of the game and, and it's a it's a responsibility to keep that that those items and that history sacred for for generations to come and i, I heard one of our curators the other day say that when we when we take on an item it's forever we tell a player when they donate an item that they are we are going to look after it forever and last time I checked, forever is a long time, I think is how he put it. So, um, you know, you, you really have to figure out. It's not just put this in the basement and hope it hope it stays. I mean, everything from temperature controls to uh, making sure that it's properly kept. Uh, it, it's all part of what we do. And then on top of that, we're a nonprofit organization that's that's got to find ways to stay funded. And it's a hundred person business. So all those things are part of what my new job is. And it's really, really cool having spent time on the team side to now um, you know, everybody's dream is to make it to Cooperstown. I just did it in a really strange way. <laughs> Can you, and, and I'll just follow up with this and then I'll, I'll uh, uh, just cause I'm curious. So how did you go from the position you were in before, which is obviously is a completely different realm to the position that you're heading into now? How did that come about? You know, the, the current, I guess he was the president for about 10 years, Jeff Idelson. And then he left for a couple of years and Tim Mead, who was my counterpart of the angels had come to Cooperstown but his family didn't go with him. He, his family stayed in Orange County and he was going to plan to fly back and forth a lot. And ultimately, um, just COVID and any other number of reasons, it just didn't work out. So Jeff, who came back for the last three to four months as the interim president, gave me a call and just said, hey, I really think you'd kind of be perfect for this job. You've got the right, the right temperament, the right relationships. Obviously, people in this job have to you have to be able to pick up the phone and call a Hall of Famer and not not freak out on the phone and deal with media and deal with running a business. And I've been very fortunate over the last decade um, working for Derek Hall at the, at the Diamondbacks. He was my old boss at the Dodgers when I first came up. And then ultimately he was the president of the Diamondbacks and he's taught me everything there is to know about running an organization and how you build a culture in a, in a building and how you make it a place where people want to come to work. So all of those things led to Jeff thinking I might be a good fit. And, uh, and then I had several interviews 
Um, first and foremost with Jane Forbes Clark, whose family started the Hall of Fame 80, 80 something years ago, almost 85 years ago. Um, and then believe it or not, the search committee was some pretty interesting people. I mean, I interviewed with Cal Ripken Jr. and Commissioner Manfred and Harvey Schiller, who's a longtime uh, respected baseball and, and sports executive. And ultimately, I guess, through the process, they decided I was the right fit. Hey, Josh, uh, am I correct in saying you are the pride of Chatsworth? Sure. Well, pride of Chatsworth High School, I guess. I grew up in Northridge, um, but went to school at Chatsworth. Yeah, I'm a Valley kid through and through. So being the Valley kid and you get to actually you got your start with the Dodgers. Right. But before that, where did your love is, is baseball your favorite sport? Because it seems for your new job, you got to really love this game. I mean, did you have any desires of playing baseball as a kid? How did your love of baseball come, come about? You know, it started, uh, I mean, I, I do have such a passion for the game. And frankly, even my last two jobs, there's no way you could spend that many hours at a ballpark and not absolutely love it. But I grew up, like you said, out in San Fernando Valley. And uh, I was probably, I don't know, I want to say maybe six or seven years old when my uncle um, sent me a pack of baseball cards. And I had been playing t-ball and I started like in the Dodgers. I remember my first game was like 1983 at Dodger Stadium. But um, I just I just took to the game to the point where back in the day, you'd literally open the, the L.A. My, my dad worked at the L.A. Times. So we had the L.A. Times show up at the house. I would copy down all the stats of every every player, Mike Marshall and Pedro Guerrero, Steve Sachs, Fernando Valenzuela. Those are the guys that I grew up absolutely loving. And uh, yeah, I absolutely had dreams to play in the big leagues, but um just making the Chatsworth team was hard enough. Got the chance to play at Dodger Stadium. We uh, we lost in the championship game at Dodger Stadium my senior year, and I, I knew I wasn't good enough to play in college. But I went to school at Indiana and had them. I had to have someone tell me I was wasn't good enough, and so I tried to walk on at IU, and they said, "Yep, you're not good enough." And so from there, I kind of started the path of of getting an internship in the front office of the Dodgers, and it went from there. But, you know, it's interesting because you bring up those are the guys that I grew up watching. You bringing up Pedro Guerrero, Sachs, Mike Marshall. I, I have to ask you this because I think you're someone who's going to know this. What does think blue week mean to you? Because oh, every goodness. once in a while I hear people still say they miss that sign, seeing that <laughs> sign out in the ravine. Were you around the Dodgers when they stopped doing? How did that go away? Why is that no longer up there? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was an intern, that was actually one of the first things I did. One of my jobs was Think Blue Week. Um, I would I would get the letters. I would read them. We would help judge them. We'd try to figure out what categories to have in each year. So, I mean, I and, remember And for people who don't know about this, Josh, what was that? Yeah. The, the letters, what were they about? So essentially what you did is you got to write in of what my Dodger dream was. And so we had categories. One was, I remember, lunch with Tommy Lasorda, or you could be a groundskeeper, or you could... The, uh, they actually had a Think Blue announcer. I think Matt Baskersian was actually like a, a Think Blue announcer for one inning where you got to, got to. I can't remember if you called, if you actually, I don't think you did it on the radio, but th there were all these different things you could do. And fans would write in these unbelievable stories, just six and seven page letters. And my job as an intern often was to read them and pass them along to the committee who's good enough to make it to the next level. And then we would, we would put together this amazing week and then ultimately um, the winners would all come out for a week during a homestand and they get honored. They'd get to not only do what they chose, they could be a groundskeeper or whatever, but then they also would get introduced on the field before the game. So it was a really, really cool thing that if I remember correctly, was started by Barry Stockhammer, one of my old bosses in marketing. 
And I think it actually, to answer your question, I think it started going away because we stopped getting the letter. I mean, as the world kind of changed a little bit to digital, I remember we started taking emails. Um, I can't remember when it ended. Um, I think I was already out of marketing by then and had moved over to PR, but I, I couldn't tell you why it ended. I just think it, it had to do with there just weren't as many people writing in as there used to be. And the stories kind of started getting not nearly as cool. People would just kind of say, yeah, I've always loved Vince Scully. Can I meet him? It's like, give me something more than that. I need a little something more than that. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I think we just decided to switch it up and do something different. I, uh, one, th one thing about this podcast is we, uh, we don't really do the softball thing. So, so I, I have to tee up a, a bit of a difficult question for you, Josh. So sure. you, you can, you can, it. uh, you, you're a PR guy, so I'm not worried about how you're going to answer this anyway. <laughs> with er, with over the last few years as you know you know with the, with the Barry Bonds of the world the Roger Clemens of the world coming on the ballot you know it, it's it's stirred up some controversy right because you know the 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 BBWA guys that vote in some cases I think they you know they kind of go about it in a, in a cheapskate way as far as how they even you know will tell you that they don't think those guys are Hall of Famers right the system to a certain degree also in some people's opinion might need to be changed so as far as the, the, you know, the voting goes and that sort of stuff, what can you tell us as far as moving forward, you know, with your reign kind of beginning, how that can, you know, how we can kind of avoid that, that controversy, if you will, to a certain degree, just because of how important the Hall of Fame is in, in baseball. In my opinion, the Baseball Hall of Fame is, is not only the best Hall of Fame, but it's the best brand Hall of Fame because of the way that you guys go about everything. Second best would be the Naismith Hall of Fame, in my opinion. So, so again, you know, again, what, what, what can you tell us about that process and, and how that can be improved? Well, I appreciate you saying that it's the best. I mean, I agree with you. I think the thing that jumps out to me is just that it's also, it's the most debated and you just, you don't hear these sorts of debates in other sports. And I think in a way that's a good thing. I mean, I, I can't, as much as I'd love to tell you, here's exactly my vision. I know how I'm going to handle it in the years to come. Um, a few things. One, it's not solely up to me. We have a board of directors that's, um, obviously very, very involved. And so I think to this point, they felt like this system does work. It does allow the people who cover the sport every single day, and there's 400 plus votes every year, um, that ultimately that group, it's not like you need 100% or 90%. I mean, it's 75% of that group has to believe that you belong in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I think the cool thing about the way the museum is also set up, there is in fact a plaque gallery that is the Hall of Fame, but even those who aren't inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean, the, the names you mentioned, Vons, Clemens, you name it, who have yet at this point to be inducted. Um, a, they're definitely all over the museum. From a baseball history standpoint, you can absolutely still go find artifacts and see things about um, their accomplishments. But then ultimately, if the BBWAA gets through this next year, I think those two in particular, it's their last year of, of uh, eligibility coming up, the process exists to have another committee, the era committees, that will also look at it. And so you see someone like Ted Simmons this year who didn't get in, he had to wait 30 years, but eventually a group of people came in and said, you know, we really think this guy belongs in there and he, he's now getting his chance. So I, I haven't been here long enough to say that I know exactly how things will or won't change in the years ahead. I mean, I'm working on week three and I haven't even actually started as president until the end of the week. Um, but I do feel very confident that the, that the people who are a part of this process take it as seriously as anybody you can imagine. Every writer takes these votes very, very seriously. They, they believe that that 10-year period that they need 
to cover the game enables them to, to try to have a valid vote. And then when you get into the board of directors and how the system sets up, I mean, you, you can't imagine how much care is put into these things to make sure that um, we're trying to do it the right way. And everybody's going to have their own idea of what right is. That's part of what makes this sport so great is everybody debates every single thing about it. No, and hundred percent true. I mean, Kurt Schilling is one of those names that comes to mind as far as debate goes, right? You know, he has a pretty good argument both ways. You know, he's a part, in my opinion, he belongs in the hall of very good. I don't think he belongs in the hall of fame personally. I might get, you know, shit on for that for lack of a better term, but at the same time, you know, that's the beauty of our game is we can, we can debate that sort of stuff. Uh, So, but I do appreciate your candor because again, at the end of the day, it's it's a process. and, And that's what I wanted to point out because I think a lot of people are looking at finger pointing and, and it's one of those things where I don't think a lot of people truly understand the process of how you get in. Yeah, it's a, it's, there are several ways to get in. Um, obviously the voting is the easiest way and the names you hear of Jeter and Mariano when you're at 99 and hundred um, percent of the vote, that that's the easiest way, but there are, there are numerous others who come in through the era committees and just this coming December, we're going to have two different era committees that will meet one of them. That's the early baseball that's from 1950 and, and, prior. And so that'll include Negro leaguers. Um, now that the Negro leagues have actually been um, considered one of the major leagues, if you saw that news earlier this year. Um, so that group will be reconsidered again as part of the early baseball committee. And then there's another committee from 1950 to 1969. Um, it's kind of the, the golden days era committee. And that, that group will get another look. So you'll, you'll always have people who will look at, at those who made their contributions, even 50, hundred years ago, and new cases are brought up and books are written about it and people weigh in and, and uh, you'd be amazed how many people still get in years and years after either they've played or they even have passed on in some cases. Ron Santo. I mean, one of those yeah. names that's come up for a lot of people, you know, that's the, the again, the, but that's the beauty of, of the hall of fame. It's the debate. Yep. Absolutely. Hey, Josh, uh, you just brought it up. The debate, I think, is the most is what really differentiates the Baseball Hall of Fame from everyone else. And you had talked about committees. One of the things that I've never understood, and I think you are the perfect person to explain it to me and, and make me understand. Okay. The fact that you are not a Hall of Famer on your first, second, third, fourth try, but you're a Hall of Famer on your 10th try is something I've never, I, I've never understood. Like to me, like what Alonzo said, there's nothing wrong with the hall of very good. And like what you mentioned, even though bonds and Clemens aren't in the hall of fame, so to speak, they are mm-hmm. in the hall of fame because their records are in that, that hall of fame. Who is going um, to make that decision? Because for me, it's like, if you have to think about it, they're not a hall of famer. To me, the, the Hall of Famers should be the guys that are no doubters. But then you also have circumstances. I'll never forget Bill Conlon not voting for Nolan Ryan as a first ballot Hall of Famer because he said he didn't want him pitching the seventh game of a World Series. And this is a guy who had, I think, what, Nolan Ryan had seven no hitters. I mean, right, right. is that something the committee would ever look at in terms of reducing the number of opportunities? And how do we keep Where's the checks and balances on these writers in uh, on their ballots? Because some of these ballots that they turn in, uh, they should have their Hall of Fame revoked. I mean, nothing against Latroy Hawkins, but come on, Latroy Hawkins gets a Hall of Fame vote. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I would say that um, a few things. One part of the reason, at times, and I can't say that this is always the case, but 
um, you can only vote for 10 people on a ballot in a given year. So there are times that a writer may look at the list and there's usually 30, 40 names on there of people who have, who have received more than 5%. So again, take the case of Latroy Hawkins. And I can't remember whether in that example, it was just somebody who wanted to do him a solid or, Hey, he treated us really well, whatever, whatever example, I think most would probably understand it was, it was more of a ceremonial vote than necessarily, I think his stats weren't going in, but he didn't reach the 5% threshold and he was off the ballot the next year. So I think to get just to, to get to the second year, that is one of the checks and balances. You, it would be really hard for 5% of 400 voters to just suddenly even keep somebody around for a second year is difficult. And then ultimately, if, if you happen to have a year where some where writers are voting, they look and they say, man, we've got a lot of people who belong on here. I'm going to put the 10 names I belong there, but name 11 and 12 didn't get on. And so maybe that year that person doesn't get on. But the next year when someone comes off it, it opens up a chance to vote for them. It, it is a it is there's no doubt it's a tad confusing of a process. And I've learned a heck of a lot more about it just in the, the two months. or I guess it's been since I, I first accepted the position. I, I do think just making sure that the public understands how it works can be challenging at times. But I think the checks and balance you're talking about, it kind of does exist because the, the, the Baseball Writers Association does have, I mean, to write, to write for 10 years covering baseball, that's not, that's not just anybody who's ever just wrote a blog online and said, okay, now I'm a baseball writer. I mean, it's, it is a significant system where they have to believe that you belong in the BBWAA then they have, you have to stick around and cover baseball for 10 years. And even then, the rogue, the rogue vote is not going to really have an impact on who actually gets in and who doesn't. So um, I know it's not the best answer, but at least it, as of right now, I think the, the writers would tell you that that system is actually in place now. Um, I, I can't say that I've studied it well enough to know yet where, where it may go down the road. Let me, let me follow up with you on what I'm curious to see whose responsibility this is in terms of the, the cap that you wear on the plaque. Uh, who makes that decision as to who? Because I, I in particular, I, there's two names that come to mind. There's a story and I don't know whether it's true. Andre Dawson wanted to go in as a cub, but he went in as a Montreal Expo. Right. Piazza went in with the Mets hat. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a Dodger fan. And to me, I, he played one less year with the Dodgers than he did with the Mets. That extra year gives him better numbers with the Mets. But to me, Piazza's best years were with the Dodgers. Who makes that call? What cap you're going to wear on that plaque? So I'll give you that answer in a second. But just from a Piazza standpoint, for what it's worth, uh, uh -huh. my first day full time was actually the day they traded him. Um, or actually we traded him on a Friday and my first day was on Monday. Uh, Walk May me 18th. through that day. I got it. Put me in that office. What was the yeah. feeling? Uh, I mean, what was crazy is when I was in the marketing department, when I first started out, it was at the time called advertising special events. And, um, so part of my job on my first day, full time with the Dodgers in 1998 was to take him down all around the city, all the uh, buses and billboards and all the TV spots. And I mean, you can imagine it was 1998. He was on everything we did. And so that was one of the very first things I, I had been an intern prior to that, but on my first day full time, um, that was, I was very heavily involved in that. And, and ultimately to the point of him wearing the Mets cap, the other thing that, that is taken into consideration, he obviously went to the world series with them, which he didn't do with the Dodgers. Um, you think about the, the huge home run after nine 11, that had such an enormous impact on the game. 
Um, so the, the answer to your question is the Hall of Fame ultimately reserves the right to decide what um, what cap is worn or if no cap is, is that worn. a committee or is that like your call? No, no, no. It, it would not be a single person's call. It would uh -huh. be a committee. And, and ultimately, it, it very much takes into account what the player wants. So, um, I mean, I, I can speak from experience when Randy Johnson went in and I was with the Diamondbacks. He he basically let the Hall of Fame, he let us know at the Diamondbacks that he had let the Hall of Fame know that it was really his strong preference that he go in as a Diamondback. And the Hall agreed. And um, now if there, it, you could have a situation where somebody, maybe they grew up in a town and they only played there for one year, but they played 10 years somewhere else. And that's where they made all of their impact. And they said, well, I want to go in as a whatever. We also have the, the ability to go in with no cap. And so I know someone like Greg Maddox, Tony LaRusso, those guys felt like they made multiple, um, just that the, 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 their, their value in multiple cities was the same. And they just didn't want to alienate one city over another. And so they choose, chose or they requested to go in with no cap. And, uh, and we certainly honored that request. So it's, it's a joint decision between the player, the team, ultimately um, the, the Hall of Fame gets the final say. So it, like, for example, in the Vladimir Guerrero situation, he probably said he wanted to go in as an angel, even though to me, he probably should have gone. He would have been the last expo, I think, to get in, right? Yeah. Well, I, I can't, I honestly don't know for sure. I'd hate to answer that one without knowing, but um, chances are he, he did have a preference. He expressed that preference and then the hall would have a conversation. And if for some reason we felt like it, it needed to be different, we would work with the player either on, on helping them understand why we felt like their contributions were much stronger in a different city than the one that they choose, or ultimately deciding that there's, that there's no cap on the plaque. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's so many, Again, it's not like the team is totally wiped from the plaque altogether. It says on the plaque that this that you played for this team, this team, and this team. So I mean that the reality is as well, maybe a Mariners fan may feel slighted that Randy Johnson chose to go in as a diamondback. It still says Mariners Seattle on his plaque. It's he's still represented in so many ways around the museum in Mariners history. And I can understand why it would frustrate a team or a fan, but hopefully it doesn't take away from their enjoyment of the induction ceremony or coming to visit the hall of fame. Josh Rawich, who has uh, been named as the president of the national baseball hall of fame and museum joining us here in the Carnesada. Josh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious. You worked for the Dodgers. You worked from the diamondbacks. You, you know, th that's kind of a tale of two cities, literally and figuratively and organizationally as well. Obviously you worked during, with the Dodgers during a different time as well. Not during this time, you know, where, where Guggenheim runs the show. But what can you tell us of, of, of working with those, you know, the, the kind of your times, if you will, with those franchises, you know, because a lot of people always ask about kind of that, like, you know, that, that back curtain puke peak, if you will. Uh, but, sure. but you were, you know, you were in, you were in the trenches, you know, PR guys are in the trenches day in, day out. So what can you tell us during that time? Well, I was very lucky to start under the O'Malley family. And so I, I certainly in my earliest days understood the history of the Dodgers and what it meant to, I actually just was cleaning through some stuff in my house today and found a, found a note that Peter O'Malley wrote me like 15 years ago in a blog, just so much cool stuff I, I've come across. And as a fan of the Dodgers growing up my whole life, to get the chance to work there was, was really unbelievably special. Um, and to do it under the O'Malley's who I always revered. And when I first came in, Tommy Lasorda was the manager who I had always loved. And Fred Clare was a general manager who I always knew about from 88. So um, starting under that group was really pretty cool. 
and obviously I think looking in hindsight, like, man, I, would you wish that they never sold the team? Sure. But ultimately they wound up making the decision to sell the team. And I had the, in some ways, good fortune to work under three or four different groups. It went from him, from the O'Malley family to Fox, which was a totally different, I mean, all the things that went on during the Fox years from, um, I remember, I mean, Gary Sheffield getting into arguments with, with the general manager, Kevin Malone, all the things that went on during the Fox years. You're right. I got a front row seat to all of that. Um, that was really when I started to move into the PR world and actually kind of interact with some of the people that fans know about, whether it was, you know, Jim Tracy or, or Davey Johnson was the manager when I first started in PR. Um, and then ultimately Bob Daly came in. If you remember, Bob Daly was there for a tiny little window and then the McCords came in and honestly, like for as my, uh, people laugh because I, they, they see me as a McCord defender and, and that was my job for the, the entirety of their ownership group. But um, they, a couple of things. One, Frank was incredibly nice to me. So it was very hard for me to say anything bad about Frank McCord because he was wonderful to me and my family. And I certainly understand the mistakes he made and all the things that went on, but watching all of that, it, it grows you as an executive. I mean, you talk about kind of take you into it. I, I was front lines of all of it from the divorce to the bankruptcy to MLB coming in and taking over the team and to be in the middle of all that when I was in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, it was just an unbelievable learning experience. Like you just, you, you learn what to do. You learn what not to do. You learn the things to say, what not to say. Um, so I think from a Dodger standpoint, I certainly learned, I learned that you, you need stability and, and then O'Malley's had stability for so long. And then during the McCord years, I think I had like six or seven bosses in, in eight or nine years. Um, we had GMs, managers turning over left and right. And it just, it is really hard to run an organization when you're constantly changing things every time it doesn't work. Um, and so then to kind of fast forward to the Diamondbacks where Derek Hall had learned under the O'Malley regime and really was, was when I got to the Diamondbacks, it was the same owner and, and president and all of the executive team is pretty much the same when I got there 10 years ago from when I left 10 weeks ago. So, um, I mean, I, I do think stability is something that's really, really important. It was the, it was the flagship of who the Dodgers were for a long time. But man, I mean, it, it's hard to sum up whatever it was, 15 Dodger years. I mean, I, I promise you, if you have any specific questions, I'll try to give you. In fact, actually, I will say this because you keep making the reference to Carne Asada and it cracks me up because I remember, I don't know if you guys remember the Carne Asada Sundays with Nomar Garcia Parra, but that was an idea he and I hatched, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago when he got there and Nomar said, you know, me and my family used to always go on Sundays and have Carne Asada. Can we ever do anything cool? So we kind of created these fun little events that were post game on Sundays. And he just said, that was my memories of Sundays was cooking up carne asada with the family. And often in, in Elysian park, they'd go over into the park there. And um, so anyway, we tried to recreate that a little bit, but I mean, they're just, I, I think of every single interaction I had at the Dodgers. Um, they were, they were incredible years. And I was just very lucky to, to kind of leave on my own terms. I know a lot of people didn't during that time. Um, obviously I, I left and the team started getting good. So Dodger fans have me to thank for, uh, getting the bad mojo out of there. And, uh, yeah, it's been a good run for that team for the last decade. Hey, hey Josh, I just want to follow up because we just had the Godfather, Ned Coletti on, and I was surprised at how complimentary he was about Frank McCourt. So hearing you, you know, and, and I appreciate it in full honesty, you're, you're saying, you know, look, the guy was nice to me. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, crap on the guy, 
but did did no one in that organization know what was coming? Because I, I know the information came out after the fact, but the guy didn't put one penny of his own money into buying the team. Like for me, I blame more major league baseball for allowing that to happen. And I feel like they just did it. This is speculation on my part. I don't have anything definitive to say, but they were helping their TV partner, Fox, who no longer wanted to be owning a baseball club to get out of there. So they're going to bring in McCourt, who had already tried to buy the Red Sox before there. But for him to not be able to put in one penny of his own money to buy the team, and then all of a sudden we find out later on that he's using the team as his own ATM, was everyone in that organization just completely blindsided by this? Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. I mean, going back to them buying the team, I will say that, um, I mean, they – times were very different and, and, and people do actually believe it or not, several people who currently own teams quote unquote tried to buy a team before and it didn't work out. So I've never really thought much of that. Like, Oh, he tried to buy the Red Sox and it didn't work out. Like that was a different group that MLB felt was, was better. And, and I remember that had more to do with ballpark stuff, but um, ultimately I, I don't know whether it was so much having to um, take care of a TV partner as much as it was it in their mind. I, again, you can debate what, how much of your own money, but he did have a property that was worth multiple hundreds of millions of dollars that was there as collateral, which is his own money. Again, I'm, I can't argue with you when it comes to what went in and what came out. Clearly, um, Guggenheim has come in and done an unbelievable job, and so there's there's really no debating um, the way that it, I mean the way it ended was very poor. Um, but I would also say that um, if you look at you look at the kind of the, the way that the TV deal that the Dodgers have now that has put them well beyond any other team in baseball because of, frankly, what, what Frank set up for them. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to believe, but Frank pretty much handed that off to the next owner and set them up for success. So to answer, I mean, to answer your question, did, did we know? I certainly can't tell you that I had any idea um, from my vantage point how they spent the money that came in and out. That just wasn't my world. It wouldn't have been Ned's world. Ned's a very, very close friend of mine. We still talk all the time. I love the guy. Um, he wouldn't have necessarily had any idea where, what houses they're buying or what trips they're taking. It's just not a, that's not a world that we would have operated in. Um, kind of like any business, Ned would have gotten a payroll and, and quite often it wasn't like they weren't spending money. They, they were still spending 120, $130 million a year, which was a lot of money. It wasn't 260 or whatever it is now, but um, so I mean, there were definitely a lot of surprises. I will tell you that. That was one of the things I do often say about kind of coming up in that last two-year period after after the divorce took place. There's no doubt there were a lot of days where I'd either be meeting with with Frank and, and he would tell me something's about to come in the paper or sometimes we would just see it in the paper and you thought, man, this is, it is definitely a kind of new thing every single day. But again, I, I took it as a learning experience and I just, I don't think I was ever in a position to ask anybody how do you spend your money or, or why aren't we spending more on players? We spent a lot on players that often didn't work out too. I mean, you Andrew look at, Jones. You look, I mean, that's exactly the name I was thinking that, <laughs> I mean, people look now, I remember when Ned came into me and said, I'm going to make him a really short term offer for a lot of money. Um, Cause I think at the, I want to say it was two years and 40. We wound up giving him and he wanted like five and 80 or something like that. And Ned's view was, it was actually pretty at the time there weren't a lot of people that were doing that. It was actually, I remember thinking that was a really smart way to try to get a guy and not be tied in for his final three years. Like 
if he's really good, he's going to get another deal after this. Um, but clearly that failed miserably. And players like Jason Schmidt, we spent a ton of money on and he got hurt. And so, I mean, I can't remember all of them, but I, it, it often wasn't a matter of not having the money. It was, we didn't necessarily always spend it in the right way. And I can tell you that's the same thing we keep doing to the Diamondbacks where we, we, when I was there for the last decade, we would often, people would laugh. Why don't you spend enough, spend any money on anybody? It's like, uh, we, we've actually, we just spent $68 million on Yasmani Tomas. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And we spent, we had the largest contract in baseball for Zach Granke. And while he was good, it wasn't enough. And so again, it's, it is hard. I will tell you, it is hard to do what the Dodgers have done this last seven, eight years. And uh, Dave Roberts, I mean, it amazes me. Sometimes I listen to people, friends of mine that think that ah, you got to get rid of Dave Roberts. I'm like, the guy is the greatest winning percentage in the history of major league baseball. Like what else are you expecting to find besides uh, I mean, I just, I think it is very, very hard to win. And even when you spend a ton of money, it doesn't guarantee winning. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but uh, I, I certainly, to answer your question, I can't tell you that I had any idea what Frank or and or Jamie would have been doing when they were not at the ballpark. It just wasn't my world. No, look, I appreciate your candor. Um, you brought up Jason Schmidt. You know, I didn't want to bring it up with the the Godfather because I thought he was gonna like you know put a horse's <laughs> head in my bed or something like that. Uh, but I, I I'm just curious those years because I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to show up to work knowing you're going to get your teeth kicked in either because McCourt told you, Hey, this is coming out in the paper or you learn it by opening up the LA times. Was that part of the motivation for you to move on to the diamondbacks and be like, look, I've done everything I can here. You can't expect me to reinvent the wheel every time. You know, a lot of people asked me that back in the day. And the, the answer is it really wasn't um, at the time. Frank, I mean, I, you got the sense that they were likely to sell the team. So part of my thinking was definitely, look, they could sell the team and whoever comes in may have their own communications person and I'd be out. But more importantly, it was about the position that I was going to. And, and Derek Hall, being an old boss and mentor of mine, is the president of a major league team telling me, hey, I'm going to have you come over here and really grow your career and kind of have you right by my side as a, my right-hand man to do all the things. And everything he promised me wound up happening. And I have no doubt I would not be in this position now if it weren't for the decade at the Diamondbacks. If I had stayed at the Dodgers, there's just no way I could have been given the same opportunities that I've had in the last decade. So it, it was not um, – it was never a, oh, man, there's nothing else I can do here. Um, I always felt like, you know, we're doing our best. And 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 even – I'll tell you, here, here's a Frank – I could say this now because he can't fire me, but <laughs> – excuse me. There was a – there was an opening day. Um, I probably would have been 2010, maybe 09, somewhere in there. But um, somebody had written Frank a letter about how his father was dying of cancer and, and he, he wanted a chance to bring him to a game. And could he get four tickets to opening day? Or It was, it was some sort of sim simple request like that. And Frank went way above and beyond, gave him his personal suite, put all the food in there, brought in all the gifts. So it basically was like, I want this guy to have the best possible memory of his dad if this is gonna be their last game together and I said something like well do you mind if I kind of mention that the plashy this seems like it's totally up his alley and he's like if you tell anybody I did this I'll fire you and I was like seriously he's like I don't do this stuff for the publicity I do this because it's the right thing to do and the number of times he would do that and even more so when I got to the Diamondbacks Ken Kendrick I think when you when you get to the point that you can make an impact like that on people 
you really don't want to do it and have people think you're doing it because of the press. Like for Frank, it was like, I want this guy to have an amazing opportunity to spend time with his family. And so it wasn't just him and his dad and two guests. It was like 20 people and the whole family. Frank went in there and spent an inning or two with him. Those sorts of things. I got to see that side of it. And so my argument always during those years was, look, Frank and Jamie deserved plenty of criticism. And I think even in hindsight, they'd probably look back and agree. But I never understood why they didn't get any love for any of the things that they did right. And I mean, when I got there in 95, they were in the playoffs back to back years and they went like eight years and the L.A. Dodgers never got to the playoffs from 97 through 04 then finally getting there and finally winning the first playoff game since 88 with Lima. All of that was, was Frank and nobody really wanted to give Frank and Jamie love for that. So anyway, I don't want to sound like too much of a defender because I do know that there were mistakes made by all of us. Um, but I think there's just, there, there were two sides of the story and unfortunately only one of them often got told and I get why that is, but thankfully you guys are all in a good spot now and you've got, uh, <laughs> You've got however many. I've lost track of how many consecutive division titles and I believe it's eight championships. Yeah, and, and so just let it go, huh, Josh? Let it go, yeah. Just let it go, guys. Try to enjoy yourselves and not be so exactly. Hateful. But you know exactly. what? Uh, I think, and 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 I'm not a Frank McCourt guy by any stretch. But Josh, you and I have both have been very lucky to work in the game, and we get to see a lot of stuff like that that no one talks about, right? And that's you know for, for us, you know that's it's you know it's whatever in the chamber, and they think that you're uh, you're you're a defender, a staunch defender, or an apologist of whoever. But in reality, it's like yo, this is just what happened. Like it's just, I mean, did they make mistakes along the way? Like I know a bunch of those guys that were on the Mitchell report. I didn't know. I mean, I knew what was. I mean, you you were in the game during that time, so you know how open it was. But that's just what it was during that time. Does it make it okay? No, yeah. but yeah. that's just kind of where we are. And I think that's the part of uh, of the you know. And that, and truthfully, I personally think that's what makes the game so beautiful, just because there's stuff like that that you don't hear. And then what does make the light of day? It's it's one of those things where now, at least in this kind of generation that we're in, we're gonna get you know the the torches and the brooms and everything on Twitter and just raise some hell, and then that's where we're at. So it's just a weird yeah. di- it's, it's a weird dichotomy. But also, I know you're familiarized with it because of what your job was. You worked in communications forever, and you guys. That's the other thing that people don't like that, that don't give credit to the guys that do what you guys do for every organization in sports, man, the shit sandwiches that you guys are dealt every single day <laughs> uh, caps off to you guys. Cause you guys, you guys have to deal with quite a bit. Well, people, I mean, the people in, in these roles and the PR roles, um, they love the game as much as anything and the hours that they sacrifice and that, 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 um, time away from your family and you're getting to the ballpark at eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning. You're there till 11 o'clock at night. And I often told people who wanted to work in, in PR, like you have to really imagine, try to try to picture a homestand where you're basically at the ballpark from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. And then if you're on that next road trip, you're going to go on the road for a week and you're going to come back to another homestand and you might go three weeks, forget having a day off. You don't really have an hour off to do laundry. I mean, you're, you're getting home at 1130 midnight. You're throwing something in the laundry. You're, trying to get it dried in the morning and it's not to complain because I think we all realize that that we we are crazy lucky to work in the sport and I've 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 spent almost three decades now not feeling like I have an actual job um I just truly love going to a ballpark and now walking into the hall of fame every single day is is just we're incredibly fortunate to do it but I think you're right that that the casual person doesn't necessarily realize what all goes into that um and how much, how much the people in those jobs, baseball ops as well, stadium ops, you think about 
stadium operations people, I mean, the security people at the building, they're in there every single day early and they're there till all hours of the night. And there's no glamour in it for them. They're just doing it because they absolutely love being around the game. And that's a, that's a pretty cool way when you're, when you're surrounded by people who love where they are for work. And that's always been the case in my 27 years. It, it's just a cool way to, when you, you walk up down the halls, think of how few other places you can go to work where there's a result at the end of the day. And People come in the next day, everybody's either really happy because you won or really bummed because of the walk-off you lost. Or it's just all, the, all the, the ways that your job is impacted by things you really have no control over. I mean, even Ned Coletti, you take, who used to, I used to, I used to get all over him because he would, he would the, the losses would eat him apart, but he wouldn't let himself enjoy the wins the way you should. I mean, if you're going to be totally into it the way that you have to be as a GM, at least enjoy the wins. And it was like, he'd be excited for about six minutes. And then by the time we went downstairs, he's already thinking about the next day. But I think even, even him, once you put somebody on the field and you sign the player, it's kind of out of your control. There's only so much you can do. And yet your whole life depends on where your whole career shouldn't be your life, but your career depends on what these guys do. And I mean, any manager knows you can, you can motivate, you can try to get people, but at the end of the day, you're not grabbing the bat to go up and hit for the guy. You're not throwing the pitch. And so you make the best decisions, and then you kind of hold your breath and cross your fingers. And uh, Josh Rawich for a few more minutes here with us. And as you know, going into the next couple of eligibility years, there's going to be some controversy with some of these guys that are, that are coming in. And, and you are, once again, in an unenviable position. Um, and, I mean, I feel like if anyone can weather that storm, I feel like it's going to be you. But, uh, you know, you have the likes – of David Ortiz coming in for eligibility. Alex Rodriguez is going to be a big one that's going to stir some controversy. Mark Teixeira is going to be another one of those, but a big one in a couple of years, and thankfully it's a couple of years for you. Uh, Carlos Beltran is going to be eligible in 23. So as you know, there's going to be a lot of, it's going to be heavily contested, heavily debated as far as if those guys belong in there just because of stuff that's gone on. And it's just funny how both of those eras, steroid, cheating, are just kind of colliding all in one shot. And unfortunately it's, it's in the past, right? But how, you know, it's going to be heavily contested. It's going to probably get a little ugly. Uh, it's a bunch of stuff is going to come out because, I mean, we've, we're even told by Adrian Gonzalez that not everything has come out with the cheating stuff. So based on that, do you think it's going to be unduly fair to these guys that that's kind of what's going to, you know, they're going to kind of live and die by the sword, if you will, but also in the court of public opinion, it's not going to go well for them. How, how you know, obviously you, you, you can't really tell us per se how, how you envision that going down, but do you think it's going to be unduly fair to these guys? Because again, you're in the business of enshrinement now. Yeah. I mean, fair is fair is an interesting word. I mean, I, I do think um, what I've found to be unfair over the years, even prior to really being in this role is just anybody who played essentially in the nineties got painted with the same brush. And so um, I, I often, I mean, I'll tell you a guy that I, I, my favorite, he's a former Dodger, but obviously more known as a diamondback favorite guy I've ever worked with is Luis Gonzalez. Um, I mean, the, the guy put up some unbelievable, unbelievable numbers for, for 20 years and didn't even make it onto the ballot the second year. And I thought things like that surprised me or, um, so I, I do think that fairness really is in the eye of the beholder. And I think that the system, the system that's in place is there to try to make it as fair as humanly possible to have people who truly love and study the game debate it like you said and and whether it's whether it's controversial or not i mean controversial could could it could be cheating or and or steroids 
It also could just be this person's on the cusp statistically and I, and that gets debated and that person may feel like, well, they didn't realize what kind of teammate I was, or they didn't know what I did defensively because the metrics weren't the same back in the day. So, I mean, take somebody like Ted Simmons actually, who for years, there were plenty of people arguing that case. And it wasn't until people started looking at on base percentage in the last decade that went, Oh, wait a second. This guy was way better than we realized. So I'm sure for years and years, he thought it was unfair, but I'd say the classiest people have just kind of figured out how to, how to, how to handle it. And I don't, I don't have a great answer for you as to how the next few years will go. I think, again, that's what's cool is that people will debate this till the cows come home and every name you just said, um, plus a dozen others are going to get put through the ringer and some of them are going to get 75% and some of them are not. Um, I'll tell you, tell you one of the ones that you don't, you actually, um, didn't mention coming up, but Adrian Beltre, former Dodger, um, who I absolutely loved working with for the years that he was in LA, um, He's another one who just, I mean, you, you watch somebody's career go from, I mean, he was an 18 year old in Vero beach when I met him, had just gone through an appendectomy and all sorts. And to see where he took his career was just really, really cool. Um, bummed that it, that it didn't, he didn't stay with the Dodgers as I kept watching him for years and years go on elsewhere, but he's another great name. Ichiro Suzuki. There's a number of names that I think in the years ahead are going to, are going to, if they don't get in trying, they're certainly going to be right there on the cusp and, that's what baseball is all about. It's debating it. And ultimately the writers will get the first say. And after that, the era committees will get uh, any last word. Hey, Josh, you know, we we're about the same age. And so we grew up in the same era of, of baseball. One of the things that I realized when I was much younger, especially, you know, in the eighties, when I would watch this week in baseball and then the game of the week would come on, I knew like the lineups of every other team in the national league. Now, you know, we've discussed this before on the show. Now baseball, in my opinion, has become very regionalized. It's no longer a a nation, uh, a national game. But one of the things we buried the lead, by the way, is, you know, we're talking about Carnesada. You're a Josh speaks Spanish. Josh is a, a is bilingual. And maybe it's because, you know, you had you worked in all those, you know, baseball media efforts when you were having games being played in Mexico and China, Taiwan, you know, the Dominican Republic, New Zealand. And you were involved also with the World Baseball Classic. So for me to sit here and say that baseball is a regionalized sport, am I wrong? Because it seems like baseball is global. I I mean, baseball is something I feel that its popularity is growing around the world. And it just makes me wonder why in this country all we care about are the teams that play on our TV channel and the rest of the world seems to be like we have listeners who listen to this show that are specifically Dodger fans. Babyface, chime me in. They're 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 from like other parts of the world. I think we have people from New Zealand that listen to the sure. podcast because they want news on their team. So, it, is baseball global? Is baseball bigger than I? In my mind, I think I'm making it out to be. Yeah, I mean it. It is. It is almost every metric will show you that the game is growing dramatically, not just internationally, but if you look at youth participation numbers are up. Um, I think the regionalization is a fair, it's a fair um, accusation for lack of a better term, 
but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there, there used to be back in the day, like you said, when we were growing up and, and I got, I watched all those same shows this week in baseball and the baseball bunch and you name it. Um, <laughs> you only really had that one game to watch and it, 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 you couldn't watch anything else. I mean, when I was growing up, the Dodgers weren't on TV when they were at home. It was only when they were facing the giants on the road. I mean, it was all these weird ways that, and so you, you talk people all the time that became Braves fans because TBS existed and all that. I, when you look now, take the Diamondbacks, who are not, by most accounts, um, they're certainly not a historic franchise. They've only been around 25 years. And yet they are, year in and year out, the number one most watched show all summer long in Arizona by, by leaps and bounds. And you can say that about pretty much 30 teams in 30 markets, that when you look at them. Now, is it Sunday football NFL? No, but if football was played seven days a week, you probably wouldn't have the numbers the same way. I mean, so much of it is the way our sport <clears throat> a is set up and B is now available in different ways. So um, from a regionalization standpoint, yes, maybe and my son is probably more of a fan of individual players. Um, and so he loved because he can pick up his phone and watch Shohei Otani one day and Marcus Simeon the next or whatever. He, he loves individual players probably as much as he loves teams. Maybe that's something that I, I don't love. He, I, I wish he grew up the same way I did, where it was one team that was that was his team. But um, from a globalization standpoint, it is growing like never before. I've had conversations with Jim Small, who runs MLB International, and they've got some huge plans for the years ahead. Um, and just to your point, I'll give you two quick things. One, um, the only reason I speak Spanish, honestly, I have to give all the credit to um, Robert Schweppe was the Dodgers essentially their assistant GM back in, in the nineties when they didn't really have that term. Um, he told me when I was an intern, I was 18 years old. And he said, if you want to work in this game, go learn Spanish. And I took him really seriously. I went back to college. I took classes. I studied abroad in Spain. I actually met a Spanish girl, which really helped and dated her for the <laughs> semester. Um, and then I backpacked around South America and just kind of picked up the language because I, and, and it has been so valuable the number of times where I found myself in the Dominican or Venezuela or Mexico, anywhere. Um, and just being able to talk to players and talk to media in their native language has been huge. But um, the best Dodger story as it relates to that um, was in Taiwan. You mentioned Taiwan and we actually brought Manny, we brought, we brought the team over there, but Manny Ramirez was real. This was 09, kind of the height of Manny Wood. He's coming off of 08. And uh, he really just didn't want to talk to media. He was not a big media guy, um, but he, we had been there for like three days. The set, the last game gets rained out and everybody's like, like, I can't believe we flew all the way over here. We're not even going to get to play the game. And so the promoter said, you've got to get Manny to speak to, please get him to talk to the media. And he wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. And I'm like, Manny, I, I, I need you to do this. And he's like, all right, Poppy, I'll do it. But the only, only if I can do it in Spanish. And I said, no problem. And he's like, well, who's going to translate? I said, me. And he's like, uh, like you could tell he forgot that I think this little white guy speaks Spanish. So we go into the, uh, the interview room and uh, the questions were coming in Mandarin and there was somebody who would translate it from Mandarin to English. I would then translate it to Spanish. Manny would answer it in Spanish. I would respond in English and they would translate it back to Mandarin for the media. And it was, it became this hilarious thing where everybody knew, everybody knew Manny understood every question and could have done it in English, but it was this little game we played. And that's kind of, that was the last thing we did. And then we took off and headed home from Taiwan. So I mean, the game is incredibly global. There are fans everywhere. We obviously, when I was with the Diamondbacks, played the Dodgers in Sydney. Um, I mean, I think I've been to 11 or 12 countries alone because of baseball. Um, and it's, 
I mean, look, it may not be soccer in terms of a, a, a global where it's the big biggest sport in, in 50 countries, but um, I would put it up against any sport in America right now. And I really do feel like it still holds its own. I just wanted to follow up because I'm a big fan of the world baseball classic and I want this thing to succeed, mm-hmm. but will it ever succeed until we allow all the best players to play? And I know it's going to be hard because I know owners don't want to let their pitchers go out there and then they get hurt and then we end up losing them for the season. So I totally understand that. But is there any way that we can make this work? Because I've been to the games. I went to the championship game for the last one when the U.S. beat Puerto Rico. It was a blast. Even the semifinal game with Japan, like the fans are out there with their drums out in the, in yep. the left field pavilion with the Cholos. It's, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Tell me, please tell me that this is here to stay and that we can make this work, Josh. Well, I, I believe it definitely is. Um, I mean, two things. One, I still believe that arguably my the best event I've ever attended may have been the championship game when Japan played Korea at Dodger Stadium. I have, I have never seen a stadium shake like that. And that's, that's years of being at Dodger Stadium. I also think it's um, success depends on how you're looking at it. It is an enormous success in every country where it's played more so than the States. I think at at the U S level, they look at the world series as our world series. And so it's not a world series. It's obviously between the two best teams in America, but you look at the the ratings numbers in Venezuela, Puerto Rico. We had the president of baseball, New Zealand was here in Cooperstown last week. And he was talking about what an enormous deal it was when their team even just won a qualifier within the world baseball, they never got to the actual field, the, the, the main field, but I do believe that it is actually way bigger than people in the States even realize. I think Team USA has taken it seriously at times and at other times, maybe not as seriously. Sometimes it's the owners and sometimes it's just players who say, I just don't want it right now. I don't feel like I'm ready yet. And I'd rather my own money, my own career is on the line. And so I'm, I'm good with it being a personal decision for each, each guy, but I, I've been involved in, um, I guess, three of the four that have existed. I was, I was in charge of the venue um, in Korea for the last one. And I'm sure I'll be involved in in the next one. It's an unbelievable event. And I I mean, I can't, I can't recommend it enough for people flip it on, watch the passion when you see the Dominican play against Mexico, or when you see South Korea take on Taiwan. I mean, it, it is an unbelievable sense of pride that these players have when they put that uniform on the same way that, it should be when you put the USA across our chests. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I just, I, I love it. I, I, I think it's great. Um, so well, last one, well, real quick, I mean, I think you're the perfect person to ask. I don't know if you'll have the answer, but I appreciate your candor. The Valenzuela retirement jersey, Josh. Everyone I ask always gives me the same answer. They don't know who's making the decision. They don't hand out the number. So it's basically retired. Are they going to wait until he dies and then retire it? Because that's, that's BS. Please tell me, who do I need to ask this question to who will tell me why they haven't retired it or when they will retire it? I, I can give you the first answer. I don't know that I can give, I certainly can't give you the second one, but th- there was always a belief, certainly during all throughout the O'Malley years, um, that they would never retire the uniform number of anybody who didn't get into the hall of fame. That was the decision. And so ultimately, I mean, to answer your question, when it will be retired, if Fernando is ever elected by an era committee, 
on behalf of kind of what he's done for the game of baseball, then I have no doubt if he went to the Hall of Fame, he would get his number retired. There's only one exception on the list. Um, it's Jim Gilliam, who passed away during the World Series, and it was a very emotional decision they made at that moment. I believe, if I remember correctly, the family and, and several players were asking to retire the number at the time. So, that, I mean, the reason why he has not been is because he's not in the Hall of Fame. And the Dodgers have always felt like, at least when I was there, that that was the way to delineate because there were other people in addition to Fernando who could lay claim, whether it's Garvey or Nomo or other people who have made major impacts for other communities or in other ways that never had their number retired. So I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, nowadays, obviously, any organization can choose. The Dodgers can choose right now to change that policy. But that has always been the policy as far as I've known. And I certainly can't speak on their behalf now. I haven't worked there in more than a decade. But um, that was always the case there, that, that you had to get to Cooperstown. Um, so if I had a number, maybe now that I'm here, maybe they'd retire my number. But I guess uh, they could retire my phone number. Though I, so is it, is it Kasten yet. or is it Guggenheim? It's going to have to come from one of those to make the I'm change. Sure that, yeah, I'm sure they're all, they would all be involved in changing the policy. And um, I really couldn't tell you exactly how it would work, but um, certainly uh, Fernando's and I, that's another, we didn't get a chance to talk about him, but just an unbelievable friend. I'll give you one last great story for Fernando. If, you, if this helps uh, end it for people, but um, when he was the futures game manager in Houston at the all-star game, uh, they had me go along with him just for comfort reasons. I had been working with him for a couple of years and he felt comfortable being around me. So I got a chance to to go with him. He was, he was the all-star game, futures all-star game manager, of the world team. And so the night before we're sitting in a bar in Houston, uh, it might've been the hotel bar. I can't remember exactly where we were, but um, these girls are there. They're at a bachelorette party. And so you obviously see the one girl with the veil and everybody's running around with their scavenger hunt list and they have to take a picture of this, take a picture of that. So they come over and they said, hey, we have to take a picture uh, doing a piggyback ride on somebody. Would you guys be willing? And I immediately was like, this guy would. And so somebody out there in Houston, some girl, some bride in Houston has a picture of herself on Fernando Valenzuela's back and has no clue that it's Fernando Valenzuela. These girls had absolutely no idea who he was. He was just a big dude who could put her on his back. And he was like, what's wrong? Like, they left and he's like, I can't believe you just did that. I'm like, how great is that? Like this, this girl's husband may pick it up the next day and be like, do you know whose back you were riding on? Exactly. So uh, he's just such, such a good dude. Great sense of humor. Awesome golfer. I love, I mean, he, he always uh, I played endless rounds with him and uh, just an amazing human being. I love Fernando. One last one from me, Josh, uh, this week you mentioned it's, it's your, not only is it your first week, but it's, there's an induction ceremony that that, uh, that can't go past us. Derek Jeter, Marvin Miller, Ted Simmons, and Larry Walker coming in. Uh, what can you tell us and our listeners about uh, uh, what to expect this week for Hall of Fame weekend? And uh, and where can they find information? And also, where can they follow you? Well, I, I really appreciate you giving me a chance to end on that. Um, it's going to be a great week here. Uh, at this point, if you're not planning on coming, uh, clearly you're not going to make a last-minute trip. But it is on MLB Network Live on Wednesday at uh, 1.30 Eastern time, 10.30 Pacific. So certainly flip that on. You'll also live stream it on MLB.com. But it's uh, it's obviously very different because it's normally a weekend. It really is kind of a one-day thing this year. And hopefully next year we'll be able to go back to kind of some normalcy. But, it, it, I mean, these guys have waited almost two years now to have their day in the sun and to be able to do it where they actually, weather permitting, will be able to be on the stage at the, at the Clark Sports Center and see thousands of people out there as opposed to, 
Um, what it would have last year obviously got canceled, and, and this year we wound up last minute changing it from a, a TV event to a, a really public event where they will get their chance to to really, you know, cap off an incredible career and give a speech thanking the people that they they feel helped get them there. We think that's really going to be an, an awesome chance. And more than that, it's also we've got about um, about 35 or so Hall of Famers coming back. And this is really their first chance to come together in the last couple of years. We've lost 10 Hall of Famers just in the last 18 months who have passed away from various, mostly just old age. But um, this is the these guys get together and this is their chance to really kind of reminisce and talk about the, the, the days together. So I think it's going to be a fantastic opportunity this year. Um for people to watch that if you, if you can on Wednesday. And then after that, if you haven't made a trip out here, um, please do let, let, let people know that you heard it on, on the carne asada postcast <laughs> here, podcast here. And uh, I'll come out and, and find some sort of cool thing to, 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 I don't know, give anybody to listen and came to visit, but it's a special place and it's on everyone's bucket list, but you got to check it off the bucket list. You got to plan the trip, come on up here and, uh, and hopefully get a chance to say hello. Before we let you go, Josh, uh, one of the things that we ask all our guests and being that you're a Valley kid, we need to know this. What is your favorite taco? And was there a place in the Valley that you would go to to get that taco? Oh, and man. is there any good Mexican food in Arizona? Which one's better? <laughs> well, L.A. LA or, or Phoenix? Be honest. Oh, man. Come on. You know, wow, that's a tough one. Um Way to there, put him in a, actually, in a precarious position. There, yeah, Juan. you put me in a tough spot. Hey, I would actually he's say, got a permanent invite to the carne asada. He can say whatever he wants. That's fair. Yeah, That's well, fair. I'd say the best tacos I've ever actually had are in Mexico. And all of the street tacos, when I go down there, Mosillo or Mexicali or any of those places, that's where I really get the good stuff. That's I'd say so LA, awesome. The white guy is the first guy on the show to say Mexico has the best tacos. Absolutely. Late, late night uh, at the Palenque in Hermosillo. That's where I would say is where oh. I've gotten the best ones. But, right. um, but um, I'd say LA and Arizona are very much on par. I can't say one is over the other, but uh, my wife, who's a huge fan of Mexican food, was very disappointed when she heard that there was no Mexican food places in Cooperstown. And believe it or not, one opened up three days ago, the first Mexican food place. Wow. Um, and we went there on Friday night. We all, I had, I had shrimp tacos. She had beef and my son had chicken. We all liked it. It's called Natty Bumpos. It's the only Mexican food place in Cooperstown. Um, so I, I, with all due respect to, uh, to those guys there, it is, it is not on par with Los Angeles or Phoenix <laughs> or Hermosillo, but, um, at least you got something when you come out here. You'll be able to get some uh, some Mexican food in Cooperstown. In your so defense, is, is, is the shrimp taco your, your, your? I'm sorry. Is the shrimp taco your favorite? Then is that your? No, go-to? it just um no, it wasn't. It just um it had a mango a mango habanero sauce on it that I just thought might be cool. But I'm I tend to be more just be I mean beef and chicken tend to be the route I go. Okay. But for whatever reason, I went there the other night and I grabbed the shrimp one. In your defense, in the entire state of New York and the Eastern Seaboard, if we're being 100 percent honest. You're not, it's hard to find tacos. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, uh, come on. Like, there's, I mean, yeah. you can get a pupusa, you can get, uh, you know, Puerto Rican food, Cuban food, all that, but it, it come on. <laughs> like, yeah. our people don't go that far north. It's too cold. Maybe like, we're, we're too tropical for that. <laughs> Can't be going up that way. Josh Rawich, we really appreciate the time and the insight, man. Uh, you, you know, you're a busy, busy guy. So we really, really appreciate the time. Uh, Josh Rawich, president of the national baseball hall of fame and museum, where can people find you if they want to follow you on the socials? Uh, pretty easy. It's just my name, J O S H R A W I T C H strange last name. But uh, if you find some version of it, 
I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, mostly Twitter. I mean, Instagram tends to be more of my travel stuff, but uh, I'm all over Twitter every single day and uh, look forward to connecting with anybody out there. Absolutely. Go throw them a follow. I'm going to do the same. And, uh, and like you said, go to Cooperstown. In my humble opinion, it's the best Hall of Fame out of all of them. The Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, I would feel like a second. And then uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is third, in my humble opinion. But again, go check it out. Watch the uh, the thing on the uh, – I forgot what day it is. What date are we? Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. at 1030, uh, 1030 in the morning. Flip on Wednesday, Wednesday September morning. 8th at 1030 in the morning. Go watch it. It's it's one of those uh, – If again, if you haven't been, go. I've never been. It's high on my bucket list. Go do it. But on that note, we'll end it. Thank you, Josh, for joining us on the Bleed Loss podcast, and we'll uh, catch you down the road. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. And there you have it. Huge thanks to Josh Rawich for joining us again. Cooperstown, if you've never been, go. It's high on my bucket list. That place in Lambeau Field are two uh, 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 you know, things I want to check off before, uh, before I leave this floating rock. So please go if you can, if you can. But if you can, also tune in this week for the induction of uh, Larry Walker and Derek Jeter amongst uh, some of the other guys. But on that note, Thank you for joining us this week. As always, we really appreciate the support. If you haven't, rate, write a review, subscribe, all that jazz, at Bleed Los Podcast on all the socials, and that's how you can find us as well on all of your podcast uh, podcast platforms. And again, huge thanks to you guys, the listeners, because for, if it wasn't for you guys, the listeners, we don't get the likes of a Josh Rawich on, on, uh, on the podcast. So thank you. So on that note, thank you again. Stay safe and go Dodgers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.